0: I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to find the second chapter of John in your Bible, John chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading there in just a moment. I wonder, this morning when we gather together, how many of you feel overwhelmed? That feeling of being overwhelmed often happens when you and I are facing Tasks or circumstances or life situations or responsibilities that are coming at us all at once. And our resources are completely inadequate to meet the challenge. And we are overwhelmed. You might have been overwhelmed just because the time changed last night. Obviously, some others were, too. And at 10 o'clock, we're going to have a wonderful invitation. (laughs) Uh, You'll have to think about that. Anyway, are you feeling overwhelmed? I want you to know this morning that, that when you encounter that situation, some of you are experiencing it right now, when you find yourself at the end of your resources, that Jesus has a supply available for you. you say, well, pastor, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what I'm experiencing and what the challenges that I have. And, and almost immediately I think of people like Paul and Silas, who in preaching the gospel were attacked by a mob, stripped, beaten, thrown into prison. And at night, that evening, they were singing praises to god they were receiving a supply from jesus that only he can give i think of just over a year ago uh, february of last year when a video was published by the people we call isis of 21 egyptian christian men who were shown on film on their knees about to be beheaded who had gone to Libya from Egypt to earn money for their families, who were mouthing with their lips, and the media didn't tell you this, but they were mouthing with their lips the words that mean, my Lord Jesus, in their language. And immediately, some of the things that we're dealing with look pretty small compared to that, don't they? But those men were receiving a supply They were receiving a supply from Jesus at that moment, the same supply that is available to you and me. How do we receive that supply? John, the fourth gospel, is one of the great gospels to point someone to who has never read the Bible and doesn't know much about Jesus. And it's a good place to begin. In John chapter 1, he opens by telling us of the origin and the nature of Jesus and Very high language. And then he tells us about John the Baptist, the forerunner. And the baptism of Jesus. And then the early call to some disciples. And the very last disciple discussed in chapter 1 is a man named Nathanael. And Nathanael was from a place called Cana. And so the very next chapter, the one we're going to read, chapter 2, verse 1, is about a wedding that was taking place in Nathanael's hometown. A wedding in Cana. And so if you'll begin at verse 1, you can follow along with me, John chapter 2, verse 1. And what we're looking for is this supply that Jesus makes available to you and me when we are overwhelmed. Verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior... You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs or miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth and apply it now to our heart, especially to the one who is here because you have something to say to them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, Jesus is revealing something very, very important to you and me. That the essence of what it means to follow him, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is not all the effort that we bring to the equation, all of the talents and abilities that we bring to the equation, all the resources that we bring to the equation. We certainly, we should offer Him everything. But the life that He has offered to you and me of following Him is a life where we are asking and receiving continuously, where we recognize need and we turn to Him and we ask, and then we're receiving. And that receiving is to be a continual experience in the life of the believer, a continual receiving of the resources that we don't have for the situations that you and I face. And it should happen in such a way that as other people see us, they should wonder, look at what's happening to that man. Look at what's happening to that woman. They're having so much adversity. They're having so much difficulty. They have so many problems. I don't know that I could stand under that. And they are still joyful. They are still seemingly happy. They are still getting along. They are still loving God. They are still worshiping Him. How can they do that? How can she do that? And there should be a sense of wonderment and awe about that. So when you don't know what to do, what do you do? Well, Jesus is revealing to us the answer to that question. Here's the first thing. What to do when you don't know what to do? Number one, invite him in. Invite him in. It says in verse 2 that Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, the need that occurred at the wedding, the need that erupted, that they were out of wine, which was an immense social problem. And we'll say a word about that in a moment. But that need was met. That need was addressed. Now, why was it addressed? Why was it taken care of? Because Jesus was there. Why was Jesus there? Because he was invited to be there. He is not going to force himself. He is Lord of lords. He is King of kings. Absolutely no question about that. And there is a day in history coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That is true about Him. But right now, at this moment in your life, He was not going to force Himself on you. He's not going to inject Himself into your life situations. He is a gentleman. As rude as it would be for someone to show up to an occasion, a social occasion, not being invited. Jesus is not going to enter into your circumstances unless you invite him in. And so when you and I get up at the beginning of a day, I think it's very important that the very first thing you and I do is think about our entire day, all the events that are ahead of us, all the circumstances that we are facing, and say, Lord Jesus, I welcome you into my day. That meeting I have at 10 o'clock, I invite you into that meeting. That conversation I'm going to have at lunchtime, Lord, I invite you into that conversation. And, And whatever is going to happen in that day, and all the relationships that you have, we need to invite him into those relationships. Good relationships, not so good relationships. I need to invite him in. Lord, how do you want me to respond to this person? What do you want me to say to this person? And when I invite Jesus in, he gives me guidance. I may not like them. They may not like me, but he guides me. And he wants to come in and guide you and I into how to treat that person, how to respond to that person, how to love and bless that person. There are times when you and I enter difficult conversations we don't know what to say. and We get nervous. We get butterflies. And, um, and we get anxious, and, and Jesus says, why don't you invite me into that conversation, and I'll, I'll guide you in that. Every decision that we make, I should never make a move without inviting him into that whole decision process and asking him to guide me every step along the way. Um, every, everything, every moment, every everything that we're encountering, you and I should be a place of inviting him in. If I don't invite him in, I'm inviting disaster at some point along the way. Why is he more present in some people's lives? Why do some people seem to have more happening in their relationship with God, perhaps, than you feel in your life? Is it because they're inviting him in? They're asking him to do things. They're they're saying, Lord, come into my life. Come into my home. Come into my family. Come into my world. Have you invited him? into your needs. And when you do, something great is going to follow. Something good is going to happen. The direction you need, there's going to be a change. There's going to be an effect because you and I have invited the Lord of the universe into our life. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? When you're at the end of your resources, one of the first things you need to do is invite him in. And before it ever gets to that point, I would invite him in. Sometimes you and I wait till we're really in trouble to to say, help me, Jesus. And that's okay. That's not a terrible thing to do. You ought to do it when you're in trouble. But we ought to do it when we're not in trouble. And you're much better prepared for those moments when they come. What to do when you don't want, know what to do? Invite him in. Secondly, tell him what's wrong. Tell him what's wrong. Look at what Mary does in verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have No wine. In that day and time, a wedding could last several days. I mean, it looks like, from your vantage point and mine, if Jesus is going to start performing miracles, um, trying to correct a social faux pas, uh, a a catering error, would not seem to be the great miracle that you would expect. That's one of the reasons why some scholars believe this had to have happened the way... The Bible says it happened because if someone made it up, this is not the thing you would make up. And and for the wedding, you can imagine that this is probably and, and for most people in that day and time, their wedding at this level of culture and society, their wedding would be the most important, most significant social event that would ever occur in their life. And and they would invest hundreds and hundreds of hours and. Thousands of dollars into this wedding event and the bridegroom was responsible to feed and to water all the people that came to this social occasion. And with the wine running out, it was an absolute, we don't understand because we don't live in an honor shame culture. And we don't understand the power that shame has in some cultures in the world. But there was incredible shame associated with running out of wine at this moment. And it was not just that it would now be a short wedding party, it, it was much deeper than that. And so Mary comes to him, and she says they have no wine." It is amazing to me the pressure that you and I, and I include myself in this we will carry on ourselves. All the anxiety we will carry, all the worry we will carry, all the sense of responsibility that we will carry on ourselves because we feel like we are totally responsible and we are the only ones that can deal with a given situation. And When that occurs, we, we struggle and we wrestle and it's so difficult for us, all because we have not done what Mary did, which was to come to Jesus and take the problem and say, Lord, here's the problem. She told him the problem. We have a tendency to tell everybody else about the problem except Jesus. We tell everybody how much trouble we're having. We tell everybody, and it's not bad to share your needs. It's not bad to ask for people to pray for you. But we have a tendency to just deal horizontally with our world and our troubles and our problems, and we don't come to him. And yet, Mary is our model at this moment. They have no one. When you and I are burdened down and we're struggling and we're just overwhelmed, how much easier it would be to go to Jesus and just say, Lord, I have lost my peace. I have lost my, my sense of you. I have lost my joy. And just to share with him, tell him the problem that you're experiencing. When we do turn to him, and we tell him what's wrong, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Jesus is there, and Mary goes to him, and she tells him the the problem. Our temptation is not to stop there. Our temptation is to go to the Lord and tell him not only our problem, but what he needs to do to fix it, and to give him instruction and give him guidance, as if God Almighty needed instruction and guidance from you and me. Instead of just coming and releasing the problem to him. When we unburden our soul to him, we tell him our problem and we unburden our soul. There's a couple of critical things that have to happen. This is not in your notes, but you need to hear this. A couple of things that have to happen. When I have this critical need, I need to admit my powerlessness. I need to disown the problem, whatever it is. I brought with me some burdens, burdens, that's right, okay, oh, 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 burdens, you and I have burdens, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, (laughs) and we come, and um, nobody knows, but if you ask me, I'll tell you about my problems. And when we come to the Lord, we need to unburden our soul. We need to unburden our soul. So, how do we how do we do that? How do we unburden our soul? And I just told you there's two critical ways. There's a right way and a wrong way to do this. The first thing I've got to do is admit that I cannot carry the burden. And one of the reasons you and I don't unburden our souls, we're not at that point of admitting our powerlessness. We don't like to do that. It's it's embarrassing sometimes. It's humbling to do that, that I have limits and that I can't do everything and I can't, I can't meet all the demands that are placed on me. But that's the first thing I have to do. And so to unload a burden, I've got to admit I can't carry this burden. And then I have to disown it. I have to leave it at Jesus's feet. This is no longer my burden. I just let go of it. This burden now belongs to Jesus. I don't own it. So I've admitted my powerlessness and I've disowned the problem. It is now his problem. But what am I doing if I don't do that with all of my troubles? Well, I'm still burdened down. And so I have to do it with every burden and problem and need that I have. I need to say, Lord, I can't do this. And you can't. You weren't made to do it. And to take my load and to, to unload it and to say, Lord, these problems are now... this is what peter was saying it's a wonderful passage of scripture it's going to be on the screen first peter five verse five and he describes this in this process in a wonderful way at the end of verse five he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble he resists the proud do i want god resisting me do i want him opposing me you know, the person who thinks he has it all together, the person who doesn't need any help, the person who says religion is a crutch and you Christians are just weak. And so I'm proud and I'm I'm confident that me and my strength and my ingenuity, I can take care of it. God resists that man, God resists that woman. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now listen to what he says in verse 6. Therefore, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, what is that? That is admitting that I'm powerless to deal with my trouble, isn't it? Humbling myself before the Lord is to say, Oh God, I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't manage these burdens anymore. And so, Lord, I'm humbling myself. I'm admitting my powerlessness. And then what does He say next? that he may exalt you in due time. He'll lift you up. Casting all your care upon him. What is that? That's disowning the problem. Casting all your care upon him. It's taking all my troubles, all of my burdens, all of the things that I'm owning, my responsibilities, my tasks, all of those things and saying, God, these are your problems. These are your challenges. These are your difficulties. These are not mine. Cast all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. Does God want you to be burdened down? Is God happy that you're overloaded? No, he loves you, he says. God loves you. Because of that, you should come and disown your problems, lay them at his feet. And then in verse 8, he says, be sober, be, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Look at how he puts all of this together. What's the number one thing that drives people from God trouble, questions they don't have answers for, tragedies, crises, things that happen that I can't explain, I don't understand it, and I want to blame God for it, and that the devil certainly wants you to do that. He wants you to be overwhelmed emotionally. He wants you to be out of control. He wants you to feel your powerlessness and to be ashamed of it instead of letting that be a highway to the feet of God. He wants you to be overwhelmed. He wants you to become angry at the Lord. Oh well, God, why did you? And in that way, he wants to drive a wedge between you and God. And so right now, this morning, you're carrying this burden. You feel this kind of weight right now in your life. And maybe it's not as big as someone who's about to be beheaded, but it's still real to you and it's overwhelming to you. It may be emotions that are out of control. It may be guilt. It may be depression. It may be any of those things. And you may be feeling that, and right now, because you're experiencing that, I want you to know, based on the authority of God's Word that we just read, that there is a spiritual battle raging around your soul that wants to take you away from this fellowship, that wants to take you away from a walk with God, that wants you to stop praying, stop seeking, stop trusting Him, stop turning to Him and unburdening your soul. God wants you to turn all your problems completely over to him. You say, well, Don, in the Bible, it talks about being persistent in prayer. Places like Luke 18, 1, where Jesus taught that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And it's because of the nature of who we are as human beings that we need to persist, because I I did set those things at the Lord's feet, but I have a tendency, thoughts begin to creep into my mind, and I begin to think about it again, and suddenly I'm feeling that weight again. And I've got to persist. I've got to persist. God, I admit, I'm powerless to deal with this today. I was powerless yesterday. I'm going to be powerless tomorrow, and Lord, I'm disowning this problem. I'm giving this problem to you. Lord, will you meet this problem? Because I can't. And so I need to invite him in. And then I need, like Mary, just to simply tell him what's wrong. God, here's my problem. and tell him your problem. Don't try to direct him. Don't try to give him guidance. Just describe for it to him, unburden your soul, admit your powerlessness, disown it, and leave it at his feet. But there's a third thing that's illustrated for us in this text. Not only to invite him in, not only to tell him what's wrong, but thirdly, do what he says. What to do when you don't know what to do? Do what he says. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now I've got to comment for a moment on verse 4 because it seems to cause a lot of people problems. Jesus appears to be being rude to his mother. Woman, what has this got to do with me? He calls her woman, doesn't call her mom. Mother, mommy, doesn't do any of that. fact the text doesn't even refer to her as Mary it introduces her as the mother of Jesus the mother of Jesus came and said this and so what's going on here well there's a lot of debate a lot of argument among commentators but let me try to drill down on this and at least give you what I know we know for sure first when he said the word woman he was not being disrespectful to his mom he used the same word on the cross in chapter 19 to speak to her it was a moment of tenderness and it was a term of respect, and it's lost in translation. Literally, it's lost in translation. But he was saying something like ma'am or dear lady or dear woman to her by using this word. So he was not being disrespectful to his mother. And then that, that curious phrase in, in my translation, it, um, it says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Uh, literally, it says, what is this to me and you? He seems to be saying, this is not our problem. And then he says, this is not my time or not my hour. And so that's where all the discussion comes. Was, was he mildly rebuking his mother? Was he, was he revisioning the relationship between him and his mom at this moment? And, uh, and there's a lot of discussion on that. You know, now he's no longer a son under his mother's, you know, control. Now he's a man and the Holy Spirit has come on him and he's doing his ministry Was it these things? Was he revising the relationship? Well, maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. But let me tell you what is very clear in this text, and everyone agrees with this. Mary approached him as his mother. She responded to him as a believer. Because the very next thing she does in verse 5 doesn't betray any kind of offense She doesn't seem to at all be disturbed or upset. She just turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to you, do it. She wasn't being manipulative. That was a statement of faith. Jesus is good. Everything Jesus does is good. And so I'm entrusting this to him. And whatever he says to do, we're going to do that. I want you to notice two things about what Jesus does when he gives his instructions. He tells them first to fill the water pots. He tells them after they've done that to ladle out some of it and take it to the master of ceremonies and to offer it to him. And he does it in two steps. These are, these are a couple of things that I want you to see. First, it's really kind of an odd set of instructions. What they needed was wine, not water. I mean, if you were one of the servants that had to cross your mind, they didn't hesitate. They went and did it right away. But, but what they needed was, was wine. They needed a lot of wine, not a lot of water. And here are these pots, and it's like 150 gallons of water. And he says, fill them to the brim. And you and I have a tendency to put God in a box. And if you and I aren't careful, the instruction that he gives you next is going to seem so odd and so unusual and so strange to you that you're liable to argue or dismiss it. Sometimes God works in ways you and I are totally not expecting, completely unprepared for what he tells us to do next. And it may defy logic. People around you may tell you that you're crazy, but yet he speaks. Now, God does speak through his word, but, and you should have a word from God when you make decisions and when you do the things that he tells you to do. And you and I should be people of the book. We should be immersed in the scripture. We should saturate Are thinking with the Scripture, particularly when we're about to make a decision. But there is still that moment where God's Word comes to our heart and we understand that it's a Word from God and my response to it has to be faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the utterance of the Word of God. And so He speaks and it comes and it comes into my heart and it has to be responded to with faith. so these men filled up the water pots and then jesus told them to do the next thing and so much of the time you and i are frustrated because we can't see the whole road map out in front of us of what god wants us to do but he often leads us step by step step by step he could have said here's what i want you to do fill the water parts with water and then ladle out some of that and take it to the master's. He could have given all those instructions at once. But in the text, he doesn't. He gives one instruction. He waits for them to do that. And after they have done that, he gives them the next instruction. And so do whatever he tells you to do, illustrated for us in a step-by-step set of instructions. Why does Jesus require that we tell him our need? why does he set life up this way of always asking and receiving always at a place where i don't depend on myself where jesus says things like in john 15 he says apart from me you can do nothing why is it set up that way why does he do that when we look at verse 11 we get an idea of why He says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed according to the Apostle John and the New Testament. Now, just an aside, I didn't think I was going to mention this, but we got time, so let me mention this, okay? There's a movie out right now. I don't bash movies. I typically don't even promote movies. It's called The Young Messiah. There are apocryphal ancient books that try to break the silence of the New Testament on the life of Jesus before he was full grown. We have his birth narratives in the scripture and we have one incident when he was 12 in the temple and that's all we know about his childhood. And the New Testament never says he performed any kind of miracles and yet there are these ancient apocryphal writings and some traditions that come down where Jesus was doing almost like warm-ups some of the miracles that he would do later in life you know raising a bird to life just different things okay just like warm-ups the apostle John tells us right here that the miracle at Cana was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed I'm not saying don't go see the movie I don't care I'm just telling you that that it's fiction. And that the New Testament says historically there was this first miracle. Now why does Jesus set up life the way that he does for you and me? He says it as a consequence of this miracle. A consequence of being invited to the wedding. A consequence of telling him what's wrong. A consequence of doing what he tells you to do. Is that he manifested his glory? That's the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened is that his disciples believed in him. One of the things that I believe God wants to do through your life, he intends to accomplish through your problems. In order to have a testimony, There has to be a test. And the very thing that's pressing on you, the very thing that's weighing you down, and you're thinking, oh God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why are you letting this occur in my life? Is the very mechanism by which He wants to manifest His glory. To show Himself to a watching world. To build the faith of others as they watch you, as you invite Him in. They watch you as you tell Him What's wrong? They watch you as you do what he tells you to do next. As you follow him, as you come to him for peace and and joy. And they see that. They see the glory of Christ in your life. And they believe. They believe. This is all over the book of Psalms. Everywhere you look. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears I asked him for help, I cried out to him, and everyone saw it. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who trusts in him. Do you see what God is is doing with your problem, with your need, with your trouble? If nothing else is happening, he is wanting to give you a mechanism that will bring him glory, and that will cause others to believe. Are you prepared to allow him to do that with your trouble that's overwhelming you and overwhelming your heart? The bottom line is this. Jesus never intends that I handle my problems apart from him. Jesus never intends that I handle my problems apart from him. He doesn't just give you the Bible and a good amount of horse sense and says, now go do the best you can to be a good Christian person. No, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to enter a relationship with me where you invite me in to everything. We know that you cannot become a Christian Unless you come to Jesus Christ and you put your trust in him for salvation, for forgiveness for your sins. And when you and I do that, we're welcoming him into our life. For as many as received him or welcomed him, they are the sons of God. They become the sons of God. And so you and I begin our walk with God by trusting him and asking him to come in. But that's also how we're supposed to live our life we're supposed to live our life the same way. Asking, receiving. Asking, receiving. Admitting I'm powerless, unburdening my soul by leaving my problems, disowning my problems at His feet. Asking and receiving. I wonder this morning, If that's not only where you are, but that's the next thing you want to do. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes for just a moment. I'm going to pray with you, for you. It's an act of worship. What will you do next? How are you going to respond to Him? How are you handling the pressures and the problems that you face? How would you evaluate your life at this moment? Are you who you are because you made yourself that way and you're a self-made man? or you, You're an independent person and you don't need anyone? Or would you realize that at this moment everything that I have depends on him? My very next breath depends on him. And I'm asking him into my life, into my problems, into my needs. In the very heart of the Lord's prayer, he teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a way of saying, Lord, I know that your will is done perfectly in heaven, in the environment that you live in in the unseen realm, everything that your will is done perfectly. Lord, I'm asking you now to come into my circumstances. I'm asking you to rule over my trouble and to rule over my circumstances and to rule over my life, to rule over my emotions, to rule over my assignments, my responsibilities, my tasks, my health, everything that is troubling me, I'm inviting you, Lord, to come and rule. In these moments when we stand and sing, you may just do that. The song itself may give voice to your cry, and you can sing that from the heart. You may need to bow your head still and unburden your heart to the Lord. You may need to come and use these altar steps as as a sacred place, as holy ground for you, and just come and pray. Pastors and I will be here at the front, and we're here to pray with you also. If you need to trust Christ today, you want to invite Him in. We're here to counsel with you, to encourage you, to answer your questions with His Word, to help you as you move forward and what God is leading you to do next. Our Father and our God, thank you. We commit this time to you, Lord. and We do welcome you here. Holy Spirit, we ask that in the way that only you can, you would come and in a magnificent and an abundant way meet the need of that soul that's crying out to you right now. That you would demonstrate your power and your love, your grace to them. That they would find in you the abundance of, that you promised. May every word of yours be true. We welcome you here. We ask that you administer among us now, Lord, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.